a listener production. Okay, are you recording? G'day and welcome along to episode 120 of the Howie Games, part A, featuring one of the most exciting, intriguing blokes in the entire AFL, Nick Natanui. Natanui! He's done it again! Natanui! Can lift over any man! Natanui! Natanui! Matt Nui's going to jump here, Dem. Oh, boy! Oh, look at Matt Nui! Oh, Matt Nui! Matt Nui! And Matt Nui! The Braves were flying everywhere. Well, now we know, Dennis, why they didn't close the roof today. He would have hit his head on it. <laughs> Nick is actually featured in Amazon Prime's incredible new documentary series, Making Their Mark. Check it out, because for mine, he is the undoubted star of the show. He is such a warm, engaging, really thoughtful fellow who has a wonderful set of values instilled in him by his beautiful mum. This episode covers all sorts. Starts with a documentary and what it was like to have cameras following him everywhere throughout the 2020 season, to growing up with not much in a material sense, being grateful for what you do have, sharing with others and lessons learned via the footy field. This is an episode to make you smile and one for the kids to listen and really have a laugh to. So you search and try to find But you don't know where to go so many thoughts flood through your mind You're confused and want to know Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by I first met Nick way back in his second AFL season when I was lucky enough to spend the day with him and his family. He was just a teenager, but even back then I can remember he made a real impression on me because he was so warm and always smiling. But more than that, he asked questions about me and the cameraman and those around us. He seemed to have a real care for people around him, not always a trait associated with teenagers. He is now a man, a very, very, very big man, who has an even bigger heart and an even greater care for those around him, especially those less fortunate. Enjoy the story of a man that is truly beautiful and I know it's a bit weird to use the word beautiful and slightly uncomfortable for me to say it especially for someone I don't know very well but once you've listened I reckon you'll understand why I chose it here's the tale of Nick Natanui so when you search and then you find and know just where to go and thoughts that once used to cloud your mind you see clearly and now you know mystery what is to be revealed in King Selassie I come on children try it with me we want to reach Mount Zion welcome to the Howie Games a man that dominates on the AFL field and for us has been involved in the recent Amazon documentary making their mark which is quite outstanding there is so much to talk to this man about Nick Natanui how you going, mate? It's great to see you. Hey, mate. Thanks for having me. Good to see you too. Uh, it's fantastic to see you. We first sat down 10 years ago, I reckon, in your second year of AFL footy. Geez, a fair bit of water's passed under the bridge since then, hasn't it? Yeah, hair's got a little bit longer and yeah. somehow a little bit blonder. I don't know how, but um, and I've got a bit of hair on my face, so <laughs> it's been a long, a long time, a long time. Hey, mate, uh, I've got a little bit of that story. I might show you later on the podcast because <laughs> um, I watched it today. Someone sent it to me. It's um, it's well worth a look. Before we get into Amazon, and I'm fascinated by how it was from an athlete's perspective, you're in the midst of pre-season training at the moment. We turn on the news and we just see guys running in the sun, running, running, running. How difficult and how tough, what, 10 or 11 pre-seasons in, is it really? Yeah, it's still pretty tough, albeit it's probably been shorter this year. Um, the season obviously 
um, was postponed and went a bit a bit longer than normal. So we came back a bit later. So um, even though it has been shorter, they've had to fast track things. So we've been back into match sort of simulation things a bit quicker. There's been probably a little less running from our club uh, than most. We've been just actually getting the footies out and trying to get our running, um, you know, in the drills and in the match play. So. Uh, I think I enjoy it more that way. I think everyone does. When the footy's involved, you can run um, chasing something. Otherwise, you just run a lap. So uh, it's never fun for myself. I'm not the, the greatest runner out there. So uh, for me to get the short, sharp game simulation stuff is perfect. Cast your mind back over your 10, 11, 12 seasons. What has been, and you might take a moment to think of this, what's been your hardest pre-season session you've ever had to be put through? Probably early days. It's funny, um, like... These days, the young boys sometimes say pre-season's really hard. I'm like, you guys don't know a real pre-season. Like, <laughs> back when we had John Walsall at the footy club, we used to have a, a link with the SAS guys, and they used to take us for pre-season. So the coaches had no say. The army guys would come down, and uh, the camps, they'd... Um, <laughs> I know it's a touchy subject, but they'd torture us. They'd, um, you know, you'd deprive you of sleep, and you'd be doing some, some pretty hard stuff that they'd, I guess, do themselves. So... Those were the real hard camps. Uh, we never saw a footy for about a month or two, but I, I enjoyed it. It made us closer as a team. The bond was, was was always better at the end of it, but they were tough times. So does it make you a better athlete, that that type of – because the, and a lot of sporting teams do that. I was watching the Tiger Doco talking about docos recently, and, you know, he was going through uh, Navy SEALs training, I think. Does it benefit you as an athlete? I reckon. I think probably more so uh, the mental side of things. Like some of it doesn't really translate physically to the football field, but the mental side of things, like just doing things that put you out of your comfort zone or uh, make you tougher and make you more resilient, uh, you know, because I guess when we make a mistake, you know, your, your team might lose or you might be in the back page of the paper. But for them, you make a mistake, um, you could die or your, or your teammates can die out there in the, on the yeah. fighting in the battlefield. So they put that in perspective and they kind of, try to make it relate to football and yeah I think that probably is the best part of doing those type of activities. Making their mark we'll just weave between the documentary and your upbringing and football but when did it first come across your desk um, I'm sure it came through your manager Mel uh, just on your manager Mel she's now sort of working for your sort of seven time world champion Lewis Hamilton have you been shuffled down the pecking order a little bit my man? 100%. It's hard. Like, I, like to try and juggle time zones with London. She's obviously over in London now working with Mercedes. And, um, you know, I think sometimes I call at the same time Lewis Hamilton calls. So she just pushes mine on the side and answers his first. But, nah, she's, she's, she's really good. Mel's awesome. Um, you know, obviously been with, with Connor Sports for, you know, all my career. And uh, they're really good. But to be able to do it from overseas is, um, yeah, it's next level. I didn't think it would work, but that's nah, working perfectly so far. So far. So, so uh, <laughs> I reckon, do you reckon Lewis is over there and I'd say, hey, Mel, who's this Nick bloke that you keep taking his calls and not mine? Do you think that's happening in his world? Oh, I reckon he's got 100 people looking after him, not just her. So <laughs> <laughs> I doubt he'd have any idea. <laughs> so, mate, Amazon, how did it first come to you and what were your initial thoughts on what is basically opening up your life and trusting people to portray you in the, in the right way? Yeah, my manager um, first spoke about it, but then also our CEO, Trevor Nisbet, did as well. And for him to say, you know, a film crew is going to come and be a part of the footy club and it's going to do so with a couple of other clubs was kind of strange because, you know, West Coast is pretty reserved and we only put out what we want to put out in terms of content. And to allow a, an external film crew to come in and, you know, document everything, I was like, this is a bit of, you know, keeping up with the Kardashians about this. But I, um, yeah, yeah I, I was like... 
I live a pretty private life, so for me to be able to do that, I was like, ah, oh, yes and no. But then when they further explained what it was going to do and, and how it was going to help grow the game, I was I was all for it. So especially to be able to project footy, um, you know, globally was um, it's something I've been trying to do for years with with football and trying to spread the word of, of how good the game is. So um, if this is another platform where we were able to do it on. I was more than happy to do. Yeah, my word, I've I've done an episode with Luke Tunnicliffe, the yeah. executive producer, and Adrian Brown, the producer of The Test, and we've talked about what's involved in making sports documentaries and they mentioned 244 countries it was going to. So mm. it, it's a massive chance to spread the word. So you're convinced and then talking to Luke, he then had to present to the footy club and he had to present to the coach. He, he said the coach respectfully asked him some pretty serious questions because there's a lot to protect with inside that expression that we hear these days, the four walls of the footy club, mate. And you, you're really showing an enormous amount of trust in Luke and his team to portray you in a correct manner, I guess, is the best way of saying it. How do you view it all? Boys, you got their ball movement. Forward handball, lower their eyes. Handball receive, it's what they do. It is not complicated, because it's almost exactly what we do. This is what Collingwood do, boys. All right, the number one handball team in the comp. All right, could anyone tell me what's happened the last three times we've played? Grand final, round three last year, round 17 last year. Do you remember what happened in the last quarter, JD? They ran out of steam. We just went like that. Even the final in 18, four games in a row. Three-quarter time, all it's been is contest and who f- wants it more? That's all it's been. It's been tougher for longer. Yeah, it's tough because I guess, you know, with any sort of filming you do, people can cut and edit and, and yeah. make you look a certain way or whatever kind of viewpoint they're going with or the story they're trying to portray. Uh, you can do it with editing. Like the skills these days are, you know, so high-tech that they can do that. So my biggest thing was, yes, you can film me all day, every day, but what's the storyline going to look like? Uh, what are you trying to achieve out of it? And I guess they just made me feel safe. You know, Luke called me, Gil Marsden, who's at Amazon, called me and said, uh, Nick, we're not going to try and make you look bad. We're trying to promote the game, make the game look good. So, yes, there's going to be some raw stuff. There's going to be some things that, you know, people see. Like, Nick, you might be abusing someone on the field that, you know, the everyday punter would never see. And then some of the locker room banter, some of the things you say. But, yeah, I... I've, I was a bit scared and sceptical early days, but after a couple of weeks, you get to know the film crew, you get to know the audio guys, and, you know, you, you don't do little deals, but you make sure that they film the right things and what you want to film, and, and they do that. But at the same time, um, in the heat of the moment, when you're, you know, full of adrenaline, some of the things that come out, they just come out, and uh, I think it'll be good for the viewers. For me, some of the stuff I thought was boring, I thought, why would someone want to watch, you know, a footy player take their ankle or, or come into a team meeting? But... For someone at home, that stuff's pretty big. So just constantly um, having that reminder was a, was a big thing for me as well. Yeah, they're going hard because I want to play, so they're trying to prove themselves. So if I go half fast, I'm going to get hurt. So I just want to, I'm going to have to go hard at them. I'm going to jump through. It's funny you say that whenever I'm lucky enough to work with people in special comments, whether it's football or cricket, and they come into it for the first time and you say to them, talk about the little stuff we don't understand, like taping your ankles or what you eat the morning of a game or what you listen to to prepare when you're going out to bat. It's a massive insight into the world of professional athlete. It's your job. So it's mundane, it's day to day. But for us that don't do that job, 
I think it's fascinating. Th- those small details, mate, are the bits that really captured me in the whole series. Yeah, I think so. I think that was the biggest learning for me. Uh, the things that I, like you said, I thought were mundane and boring were things that, you know, people will really thrive off and, and really enjoy watching. So I'm excited. I hope they enjoy it as much as, um, you know, the stuff that I've seen. I haven't seen it, the, the whole, um, you know, Amazon episodes in its entirety, but from what I've seen, it looks pretty exciting. But yeah, I hope everyone, um, you know, accepts it in the same manner. Oh, I think they will. It is exciting. It's raw, as you say, at times. From my experience, Nick, the camera magnifies everything. So if you're emotional, you look more emotional. If you're upset, you look more upset. But more importantly, if you're a good bloke, you look like more of a good bloke. And if you're not a good bloke, it reflects completely the opposite way. And and I say this to you, it's a bit strange saying it to you in person, but you just come across as a, a really genuine, warm, caring fella, which is the small part of you that I know. That's what you are. So I think it just magnifies that. So it's it just shows people that you're a good fella, I reckon. Current times, current situation, the landscape says that no one's allowed in here. This just represents how many job losses we've had, how many people have had to take time off, and half the people that were working in here aren't aren't with us anymore. They're out doing different jobs. So uh, fingers crossed they come back next year. Yeah, I think the biggest thing, whether it does show we're good or bad, I just think just showing that we are human at the end of the day. And I think if you filmed any athlete or any person in their respective jobs, it just shows yeah. that we have a life away from the football club. And, you know, I think that's the biggest thing that's misunderstood with, with footballers in particular is that we go out, we train, we play. Sometimes you see guys partying, getting in trouble. But uh, majority of guys, like, it's it's little things, hanging out with their families or um, cooking dinner. Um, and it's just the everyday things that are just, they're the normal things that, you know, sometimes you get put up on this pedestal and everyone thinks you just, you know, you are the highest of highs and you don't do anything wrong or you you don't have any troubles or any demons, but I think this doco will really show um, some of the hard times, some of the more confronting times, and, and like I said, show that you know we are we all are human at the end of the day. What it really showed me, I think the main thing I took away from it, mate, was how difficult, if it affected you that way, hub life could be. It's like me being at work seven days a week. So you finish a game of footy and then you enter a review and then normally you get to go and hang with your mates or go fishing. But there you are at breakfast and your teammates are scattered around you and the coach is there. To me, that looked hard. How was that for you that you were pretty much at work nonstop when you're in the hub? You couldn't escape it. You couldn't do those things you typically do when you're not at work. Yeah, like I said, like for me, I like to switch off. I like to go hang out with my schoolmates or go fishing and do things like that. But um, I think in the hub in particular, the first time we went, uh, we'd lost three games in a row and most guys were just, you know, getting their food and going and eating it back in their room because you know you played a bad game and, you know, if you did that in Perth, you could just, you know, get in your car, drive home and, you know, you switch off from footy for the night, whatever. But at the hub, you might be sitting next to your coach or your assistant coaches, so you always felt guilty or you always felt you had to be doing the right thing. What we're delivering here is so unacceptable. And the season's slipping away. So we need to get our heads out of our asses, coaches included. We'll always go into bat for you guys publicly. Never, ever go against that. But internally, you need to understand reality about how we're playing. We need to sharpen up. It's hard, right? Because we're home and at the footy club at the same time. And we try to give you a bit of autonomy, but you're taking the piss, some of you blokes. Standards have slipped. No dietitian, so some blokes just f- do what they want. No consequences. 
and you know who you are. Grow up, take responsibility, and wait for someone else to give it to you. We need to lift our standards, boys. Sometimes some guys forgot to be themselves. Like um, I know there's some players who you know who drink a can of coke with their dinner. They'd be drinking a sparkling water this time because they know the coaches are in there. So, uh, yeah, you never really got to switch off or it was footy, footy, footy. But uh, I think having the perspective that we were lucky to still be doing our job at the time when, you know, a lot of people lost their jobs was probably the biggest part that made us get through those hub situations. You wore a mic during games. I don't know how many games you wore it for. Tell me the physical process and how quickly did... How, what did you think about it when they said we want you to wear a mic? What was the physical process and how quickly did you forget the mic was on? Because it's, yeah. it's fantastic out on the field. Just the ruck contest, just when you're battering into each other, it's like, you know, it's like two giraffes crunching <laughs> into each other and you hear it. It's, it's, it's really raw. Show on, whatever you want. Yeah. Show on, whatever you want. Show on. All right. Stop, Sukkot. Yeah, I, um, I, wore, I wore a mic for every game and for every training session. So Did you? it's funny. So the what is it, seven episodes? They probably have, yep. you know, this eight. much. But, yeah, eight episodes, there's this much. So I think if they put it all together, they could make, you know, a year's worth of, of documentaries with the stuff they got. So every training session, I think the first few weeks, everyone knew that I was wearing it. So guys would sort of avoid you at times. Um, I'd wear it at lunchtime and things like that as well. So guys would sometimes avoid you, but also sometimes guys, and particularly myself, would be scared of what I said. But, yeah, after a few weeks and you start getting into it, you just forget it's there. And that's when the real stuff comes out. I think the early practice matches, a lot of it was very staged and, mm. you know, I was very careful with what I said. But as soon as someone whacks you in the side of the head or, you uh, you know, you're losing and you want to get going again, you don't care about a mic, you don't care about no camera on you. You just, you just be yourself. And I think that's going to be the most riveting part of it. Did you bust any of them? You're a big unit. Yeah, I did. I landed on it. So we have we wear a GPS behind our, our neck, and then I had this massive microphone as well that was connected to me as well. So I, I thought it was a bit of a, a hazard, but yeah, I think I broke one. Um, I broke um, you know the side of it as well. But oh, Amazon got plenty of money, so I <laughs> <laughs> replaced that thing overnight. They replaced it overnight. Mate, I'll, I'll, as we chat, I'll come back to points in the documentary. But but let's go let's go right back to the start. Tell me a little bit, mate, if you don't mind, of uh, your family history. Yeah, so my, my family's from Fiji originally, a, a small village called Suvavo, which is um, not far out of the, the main capital of Suva in Fiji. So uh, yeah, my family's a pretty big family, pretty pretty traditional cultural family, and we I grew up I actually grew up here in, in Perth, so. Uh, my mum's brother uh, met some Aussies over in Fiji and, and got a job uh, in the mines, like every good West Australian does, does FIFO over here. So <laughs> he FIFO'd out of Fiji and, um, yeah, he ended up finding a place in glorious Midland. Uh, if you ever get a chance, Google Midland where that is and, and what it's all about. Uh, <laughs> a bit like the Frankstons in Melbourne okay. uh, or, the Eliz- or, the, or the Elizabeths in South Australia. <laughs> right. uh, I'm trying to think. Um, so... The great, I love it. It's home for me. So they moved over there and, um, yeah, my mum um, was asked to come across and, um, you know, live over live over and kind of look after the house as well while he worked away. So um, we moved to Sydney initially. Uh, my old man passed away from cancer when I was two years old, which is tough for, for mum. And, uh, yeah, I guess for her, she just wanted some family around her. And, yeah, Perth was, I guess, the only other option besides going back to Fiji. And I think with most Fijian families... 
people, you know, the life over, over there is pretty good. It's pretty laid back, pretty chilled um, and very family orientated. But I guess for a better way of life for, in terms of work and for education, Australia has always been the number one option. So we came across and, yeah, lived in, in Midland for, uh, you know, the majority of my childhood. And then, yeah, the rest is the rest is history. I've obviously played my footy from there and, and you know, moved on to, to playing at West Coast Eagles. There's no easy way to ask about parents that are no longer with you, um, and I hope you don't mind me asking firstly no, about 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 your father, mate. Two years old, I guess you don't have any memories except photographs. The obvious question is, mate, what's it like to grow up without a father? But when you don't have one, I guess that's all you know. Yeah, everyone always thought it was tough. I think, like you said, it's all all you know, really. Like if you never really have something, you never really know what you're missing. And there's times where you do kind of think about it and think, you know, am I missing out? Like, uh, obviously playing football, playing sport at, at an elite level, uh, a lot of guys have their dads that, you know, aren't the coach, but they almost coach them in the car on the way to games and mm. help them carry their boots to games. So I was always that kid that just rocked up on my own. My mum was always working two jobs on the weekend, so I'd find my own way. I was very independent, so uh, I'd catch two trains and a bus to get to, to, get to training, um, to get to games. I'd, I'd rely on someone to um, help pick me up and take me. So... I've had a lot of support along the way to get me to where I am now, so I'm very, very thankful for that. But, yeah, it was tough, but at the same time, I yeah, I guess my mother was playing both roles as mother and father for the majority of my life, and I had a twin brother, so I was never really bored. So uh, the two of us kind of just, you know, we made our own fun and, um, yeah, never really looked at it in a bad light. I've had the pleasure of meeting your mother and your twin brother who... I don't know, 10 years ago, he was even bigger than you. Mark, it's Mark, Mark isn't it? Yeah, he, he's, he's, a ma- he's a massive unit. Like, you're a big man. He, even 10 years ago, I think he was involved in rugby at the time. And myself and the cameraman, I reckon it was Andy Broderick, because we came to your house, which we'll get to. He just sort of had to almost go sideways to get through the doors, the big man. Yeah, I know. So I actually look back and I felt sorry for my mum because to try and feed us two growing children, we were like growing men so at, at a young age. So uh, she did a good job. She did a good job. You mentioned that she had a couple of jobs. Tell me what your mum did to keep you boys ticking over. Well, my mum worked um, at the youth shelter. So she worked with homeless families um, at this place called Swan Emergency Accommodation. She worked there for a uh, for years, for about 20 years. But she also worked at the youth shelter with, you know, struggling kids and that. So, for, uh, and she also worked at the uh, the women's refuge for, you know, women um, and families escaping domestic violence. So she was constantly working um, and always in good causes like that. She was she had a heart for it and a passion for it. And uh, the, the best thing about that was, you know, I come from a pretty low socioeconomic area and a lot of those children um, who were in my class or at my school, you know, lived at the same residence where my mum worked at. So... I had a, a pretty good understanding for their lifestyle and, and some of the hardships they've been through. And, yeah, life was hard for us at times, but, you know, some of these families that, you know, I grew up with were going through the same thing, if not worse. So uh, I've never really been one to judge people. Um, I've always given people a chance, and I think that's come from what my mother's instilled in us and, and some of the learnings I've taken from, I guess, her workplace. I remember her telling me that yours was a house as you were growing up as a 12, 13, 14-year-old. You mentioned she was feeding you and your brother. It sounded like to me that there was always... Yours was the house that all the other kids went to. Yeah, I, I swear my house was the youth shelter. It was uh, the drop-in <laughs> centre. There was always 10 or 12 kids and, and mum always felt sorry for families and she'd always go without. So 
We, no, that's a lot. We'd always go without because <laughs> there'd always be Christmas time. You're sharing it with, you know, a bunch of other families or, uh, you know, you if there's dinner cooked, um, someone's coming over because their, you know, their parents aren't around or, you know, that someone's um, got a drug addiction. So my house was always full. It was never boring. There's always, um, you know, people coming from mum's work, but we made a lot of friends that way and you learn to share things. So I never really owned anything. Um, you know, I always shared, but for me, I wouldn't have it any other way. So if you had to say, Nick, that you took one thing from your mum, she struck me as a woman that was teaching you lessons daily, but one general theme that you've tried to apply in your life, what would it be? Oh, just to, just to help others. You just don't know who it's going to really affect. And, you know, I look at my life and the help we've received over the years has gotten me to a point where I'm able to do the same. So, uh, yeah. You can go without, but, um, you know, you're not going to die. That's the biggest thing. I think we've always learned that even though we might not get the brand-new pair of Jordans at Christmas or a brand-new bike, um, you know, I think you get a bigger sense of joy when you're when you're giving the gift rather than receiving the gift. So I've always had that in the back of my mind. Mate, something deeply personal. At, at this point in the podcast, I got someone to, to a couple of days ago to send me the story, and I hadn't seen it for 10 years. So this is a story where I, I came to your place. Uh, it was your second year of football. You were nominated for the Rising Star Award, which I think in the end you came second in, didn't you? I think so, yeah. I can't remember. It was a long time yeah, ago. I think, <laughs> yeah, I think you did. I think you did. And the idea was to take people behind the scenes in four or five young players and show them their background and where they were from. Now, at this point, I'll put some of the audio of that story in the podcast because it involves your mum. I'd like to show you some of it now, but I don't know if that's upsetting to you. So I prefer to ask you, do you want to see it or do you just want me to put it in there? I'm easy. I can see it, yeah, if you've got it there. I would love you to see it. Perfect. So Nick's on Zoom and so I'm going to hold my phone up uh, and I'm going to play some to you, mate. Hopefully you can see it okay. I'll play about a minute and a half. So this is you as a... This is you as a... I don't know. You're probably 19 at this stage. You're in your second season at the West Coast Eagles. Yeah. I watched it this morning and it, yeah, it really made me smile, mate. We're from Fiji, from the capital, Suva. We just uh, moved into Sydney for a better life. And the boys were born in Western Sydney. At that stage, you had two young fellas and you were a single mum. Yeah, single mother for 17 years. Difficult? Um, we just get through because you just soldier on. The boys have me and I have them. And we just have to look after each other. Must be a pretty tough lady, your mum, though, to look after two young fellas by herself. They're all pretty good kids, so it wasn't too hard. <laughs> <laughs> so I've said you must be pretty tough, and you're like, nah, we're, hair. Pretty, we're pretty good kids. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get to the hair. I'll play a bit more of the, the hair later on. Um, uh, I haven't seen that in ages. No, I, mate, I, I haven't seen it for 10 years. Um, what's it like to look back at? Like, your mum's, oh, my memory, and this is, about you, but my memory is myself and Brods, the cameraman, your mum wouldn't let us leave until we'd eaten. She, <laughs> she, she set up that dinner for the camera and then she said, you boys must eat. That's my endearing memory of your mum and how she was. Yeah, that's big. I think always just giving back, always helping others. But, no, it was, um, it was sad that it was actually happy. It was, it was nice to see that as well. It was, um, like you said, it's been a while, but uh, it also reminds me of, of where we've come from and how far I've come. Uh, like a 
pretty humble beginnings. And then, you know, even that place you came to, it was a, you know, it was a little rental that, you know, we paid about 300 bucks a week and we had a full house and, you know, my brother and I, we'd share a room. So it was, um, you know, you almost feel guilty now that you, you know, you've got a couple of spare rooms in your house and, you know, I've got a room dedicated to sneakers. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good reminder um, of, of, yeah, I guess where I've come from. I'll send it to you. I'll send it to you. Yeah, I'll, awesome. I'll WhatsApp it to you. So when did you first come across footy? Uh, I actually came across footy um, on my front street. So, yeah, I, there was a couple of Indigenous boys playing footy at the front of my house and I was thinking, what's this funny-shaped thing they're bouncing and why are they kicking it <laughs> and, you know, yelling at things like Kappa or... Uh, I was like, what is happening here? And, and they went, and to be honest, the football that I saw at the front of my house is not necessarily the football that I see uh, on the TV every week. It's very structured on TV. These guys are playing the footy I like. Yeah, the Cyril Rioli type footy. <laughs> that gets you excited. Well, for people that aren't aware, I think it was sort of Michael Walters, Chris Yaron. Were they actually on your street? They were my next door neighbours either side of my house. So, uh, yeah. It was uh, it's pretty scary. So it's pretty scary to think that three AFL guys live right next door to each other. Hogan went underground. The spin from Walters through the traffic. Has he got enough on it? It's drifting. Oh. It's floating. It's there. Phenomenal from Michael Walters. Handball inside was terrific. Yaron, Yaron, Yaron. Still Yaron. Cheeky little bounce. Oh, well done. Runs towards goal. It's a chance. It's <laughs> as good as you'll ever see. Does part of you wish that? It's modern professional sport and it's never going to be that way, but does part of you wish that that's the footy? The footy we see in the Northern Territory, does part of you wish that's what we had in the AFL? Oh, 100%. I go up north every year and uh, I work with some of the Indigenous kids in the remote um, Aboriginal communities and, you know, the, the red dirt, barefoot, um, I guess the just the, the fun side of footy where they're taking screamers, they're kicking snaps around their body and doing things that... Most children their age shouldn't be able to do, let alone um, adults doing it, is the type of footy I wish I saw more often. So when I see kids like that come through the system, you know, the um, the Mosquitoes and, like I said, the Riolis, yeah. those type of players um, come come in and play footy, I, uh, I get really excited because I'm like, you just it's just the unknowing of what they're going to do next is what gets me excited. We've got Liam Ryan at our footy club. Oh. And and to be honest, when we had him and, and Willie Rioli both in the team at the same time, you just think, what are they going to do? Not just that, they make training fun because they snap goals from the pocket. They take screamers when they're running backwards. There's things like that that you can get caught up thinking footy's a massive business or a massive industry, but you get this raw talent that these guys, you know, bring every every day is what um, is what footy's all about. I think that's what footy's meant to be. It's funny you say, Liam Ryan, that's what I love as a commentator playing a very small part in the game. Like if I know Liam Ryan's playing, I, I recall a game a couple of years ago on, on the radio with Triple M and we we're working with Paul Ruse, who knows 28,000 times more about football more than me, Nick, and Liam Ryan took a hanger and I was going <laughs> with chops and Ruse cut me off and basically said, Where's his man though, Howie? And I'm like, but does it matter where his man is? And he's like, in the modern game, it does. And that's the yeah. that's oh. the two clashing sides of it, isn't it? He drops it long. Darling's there. Right, oh. leaped over the top, almost took the mark. Handball, Bontempelli got it to court. He scrubs it down the line. Ryan takes to the sky for the second time this afternoon. Hasn't really got 
anywhere near those marks, but if he takes one, by G. I'll tell you who might be having a bit of a word to him, Duck, is the key forwards. It's not the, it's not the waffle now, you're playing the, uh, the AFL. Personally, from where I sit, I love it. I like to see everyone attempt every hanger possible. Step high ball, Ryan! Oh, there you go, Howie. Sword like an eagle, what, what a mark! Go for it, Bruzy, that's why you've got to tell your little blokes to go for it! I don't mind him marking them. Just don't keep dropping them. Yo was too strong. Later, to Hamble off to Gath. They're having their own way now. Leaping! Oh, Liam Ryan! Oh, oh, Shut up, Bruzy! I'm with man, Howie. He yes. can go for bloody anything, this kid. Yeah, I'm against that. I um, That's why I think Simo's such a good coach. He nurtures it and he allows you to, okay. to be who you are and play instinctively. And... Uh, yeah, I, I, like I enjoy guys. Guys go out and have 30, 40 possessions and it's cool. But like you said, when you've got someone that can really, you know, showcase their ability and their skill and might have 10 touches and, and not kick a goal, you know, they make it so much better, so much more worthwhile watching. And I, I flick into under footy channels to watch players like that. I don't really watch, you know, yeah. some of the superstars of the game. You know, no disrespect to them. They, they're, they're doing their job. They're doing it really well. But those guys that just, you know, Make highlight real. So Liam Ryan will. Liam Ryan always gives everyone a promise. He always walks past two or three of our teammates every year and go, you know what, you're going to be on one of my posters or one of my footy cards this year. And um, <laughs> you know what, he doesn't lie. He always gets someone. So I, uh, I make sure if he's jumping, I'm out of his way. <laughs> and a few of those forwards are streaming towards goal. Kennedy, that he'll get the distance. Goes long, right to the goal square. Right. He's taken the mark of the year. Forget about the competition. Liam Ryan has climbed on Max Gorn and taken a miraculous mark. You will see that again and again for the rest of the season. It's funny. You know, I know you're a massive devotee of American sports and I love that Brady and Gronk will put a clip up with that funny look on their face as if to say, how good are we? Or a bloke scores a touchdown or Steph nails a three-pointer and he celebrates. And then, especially the NFL boys, they'll talk themselves up post-game. Richard, let me ask you the final play. Take me through it. Well, I'm the best corner in the game. When you try me with a sorry receiver like Crabtree, that's the result you're going to get. Don't you ever talk about me. Who was talking about you? Crabtree, don't you open your mouth about the best. Or you're going to set it for you real quick. L-O-B. Joe, back over to you. What I would love for you <laughs> to dominate a game and then say, you know what, I was pretty good today. I, I would love to see that in Australian sport. Unfortunately, it's not part of our culture and I think it should be. Yeah, I, I do miss that. I enjoy the American side of it. Obviously, sometimes the ego gets in the way sometimes, but yeah. just some of the – the thing is, I think hopefully the Amazon doco shows some of it, but um, most of the players do do that, but they do that in their own way behind closed doors. Yep. And, you know, someone kicked six goals. They're going around and telling every single player they kicked six goals or they took a massive hang So you should. Hang out. So you but, should. But then they get in front of a camera and they're pretty straightforward and they yeah. say the same old things. And I think it's boring. So I think we need to get more guys who are like that, you know, in front of the cameras and just to celebrate greatness, I guess. Yeah. Oh, celebrate greatness, you're right. We, we don't see you from November till March slogging your guts out, trying to go by centimetres to improve your profession. And when you've had a day out, you should be able to celebrate all that hard work you've done without, 
old mate in Australia going, geez, Nat Nui, what a knob, he's getting ahead of himself. You know, exactly he might right. fall, he might come unstopped next week. Like, celebrate the fact you've kicked six and you've been on fire. That's it. I think it's the good old fashioned tall poppy syndrome. You know what it's like. Yeah. It's, um, as soon yeah. as you do do that, they'll be there to chop you down. Back to Nick Nat in a moment. Now, 120 episodes in, I've heard a few pretty surprising stories, but I don't think any can match next week's guest. Any. Footballer Craig Johnston. Craig left Australia as a teenager, eventually playing 271 games for Liverpool and winning all sorts of titles, including a European Cup. But Craig's journey to the top started at the very, very bottom. And he had a look around the dressing room. He said, you're rubbish. You're hopeless. You're shit. He said, you're ridiculous. He said, you. He said, mate, where are you from? I said, uh, he said, what's your name? I said, said, my name's Craig Johnson. I'm from Northern New South Wales, Australia. He said, you are the worst footballer I have ever seen in my life. Now, I was like shocked. And I think, I think so was the rest of the dressing room. And I said, what now? Meaning half time. He said, now, hop it, you know? So I just looked around. I was so embarrassed. So I uh, packed my little bag. My raster hair had mud and snow and I was drenched. I packed my bags, went outside, closed the door, right? And it was still pouring down with snow and rain. I burst into tears again. And that was it. That was my trial. That's Craig Johnston up next on the show. By the way, the latest edition of the Howie Hotline dropped this week. It's in your Howie Games feed right now. Pretty much it's your questions. We try and answer them. Check it out if you haven't already listened to any of the hotlines or better still, record and send in a question of your own about anything, podcasting, the show, episodes, sport, commentary, life, anything at all. Record it and send it in to us. The number to message is on the hotline descriptor. So have a listen and send us something in. Get yourself involved. Alrighty, let's get back to Nick Nat. Talking about, I'm going to swing around from places. I want to find out about your first game of footy, but you mentioned Adam Simpson, who comes across also brilliantly in the Amazon doco, making their mark. At one stage, he talks about the hub is what the hub is going to be. We are about family, friends and flags. I suppose the last eight weeks, we've been probably all through the same thing in our own different ways. And I reckon everything's got... Uh, everything's shrunk. So we've got 25 staff. Uh, We had 45 eight weeks ago. So talk about sacrifice. We've had probably 10 to 15 of our staff go work in the mines for two weeks, 14 days straight, 12 hour days, just to put food on the table. And I want you to think about people who aren't here because our hearts are bleeding for them. So the gratitude for where we're at, you guys are sacrificed as well. I mean, you're playing for half your income. So this hub thing, it's gonna be tough, but it could be the best four or five weeks of your life. It's sort of up to you, all right? And I know we're leaving a bit behind, and I know some will be doing it harder than others, but can we embrace the next five or six weeks and make it really special and do it as one? Like there's 70 of us traveling. We're all going together. It's one in, all in, okay? Squads win flags. So why don't we just win one of these? This is our purpose, families, friends, and flags. Don't forget that. What do you get and what do you want from your AFL coach? Oh, just honesty, I think. Just someone that can uh, facilitate. Like, he's there to coach and put through his ideas, but I think someone that can also put his trust into the other coaches who are there who have different ideas. 
Um, obviously, they overlook the, the entirety of it, but I just think the way that – I think having someone that comes from a club like North Melbourne is probably um, the most valuable part. Like, he was there, obviously, during the Shinboni years, and, you know, they didn't have money. They didn't – you know, they come from somewhere where they, you know, hardly had a gym, hardly had a training facility to one of the best in the country at West Coast is um, – is massive because he, as much as he's working for a big organisation, he came from almost nothing, and I like those kind of those kind of guys. And yeah, and he's not too, you know, in charge. He doesn't go and you know he's not a dictator type of coach. He doesn't say it's either my way. We're not doing it at all. He, he gives everyone a say, and, and that's inclusive of the players as well. If he if he's not sure about something, he'll come and ask the players. Oh, do you reckon we do this? Do we do that? So our fem, our family, friends, and flags. We we queried it a few times. We were kind of like, oh, do we want to put the flags part in it? You know how every team doesn't want to talk about premierships and finals and flags. He goes, well, what are you playing for? Like, are you playing just to win games and win, you know, 20-odd games of the year or are you playing to win flags? And, um, you know, someone who's just real about it and not shying away from the fact that that's what we're there for um, is someone that, you know, I really like. He used the visualisation too. For those that have watched the show, he's holding the cup. I presume it's the 2018 Premiership Cup. It's like it's like a no-no of football. It's like one week at a time, one week at a time. And this is what we're talking about, uh, almost an American approach. He, he's saying, it's almost, I'm watching it thinking, well, he's saying, this is why we're here. Let's not beat around the bush. We're here to try and win this thing. You know, a week at a time, don't get ahead of ourselves, but this is what we're here for. Yeah, that's the thing. And I think, just like I said, being honest and just showing us like, like you said, people don't really bring the cup out and show it around and say, oh, this is the 2018 flag and the trophy, this is what we won again. He just does it and says it. You know, there's guys that missed out. I was one of them who didn't play in it. And he'll openly say, oh, Nick, do you want one of these? And I'm, I'm like, I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah, I do. I want, I want 10 of those. But uh, instead of going, oh, no, you know, it'd be a great thing if the team wins one of that. I think just being honest, which players yeah. tend to lose and not do um, as often, um, similar to the interviews post-game, yeah. I think it's, that's, that's something that we miss a fair bit of. I think you and me are going to revolutionise AFL football coverage. <laughs> we're, going to, we're going to show what the entertainers want to see. You mentioned it. We're, we're skipping around. What's it like sitting in the grandstand, which is where I presume you were, with a bung knee watching your teammates who you've been with for eight or nine years at that stage win a premiership? Two minutes and just under. Massive. Sheaved from the boundary. Needs to be in perfect. He is. He's got the most impossible goal. It was tough. Yeah, yeah, it was tough. I obviously understood the, the um, I guess, the enormity of it all and how big it was for our footy club and for our state in particular. Remarkable. No Nat Nui, no Gaff. No Shepherd concede the first five goals. It's one of the great grand finals and one of the great victories. Collingwood out of that centre. Bouncing ball. They've got a brand new stadium, a big one, and they're going to put a big flag up there in a moment because the Eagle has landed. They're the premiers in 2018. To miss out, to have been there for so long. <laughs> I remember going to the change rooms, I was pretty upset and I was crying for a bit. I was crying in the corner before the boys see me. Then I come back and mm. uh, I I never really get angry at the boys or the footy club. I get angry at myself because I'm like, I'm the one that jumped up and landed incorrectly and hurt my knee, so i got no one else to blame. That is a terrible sign, though, for West Coast supporters. And Matt Nui takes a seat. Pivotal to this team, as we've seen tonight. Yeah, I missed out, but... 
I always put it into perspective and the boys are pretty good. I, I was actually angry at a few of the young boys, the Liam Ryans, the Willie Rialis, the Daniel Venables. They were, you know, in their early days and they'd already got, got a premiership. So they thought this is pretty easy. So, um, but that happens in every case. There's guys who played a lot of footy and never won one, never even played in the grand final. So I had my chance in 2015 and we blew that. So um, I can't blame anyone for that year either. So I, I think it also drives me to, to get better, that hunger, um, you know, is always there knowing I haven't got one yet. But uh, it is what it is. Like, I had all the boys around on the Tuesday morning after the grand final getting tattooed by my friend in my lounge room and in my kitchen. So, hmm. um, you know, getting their little premiership tats and I didn't get one. And every day I see those tattoos on the boys at the club, I, uh, I get jealous. So uh, it's all part of the game. You mentioned 2015. So what's it like when you've had the opportunity? Tell me the moment. We're dealing... I think the thing I enjoy about this show, Nick, is that people begin to understand that you just don't achieve success in the sporting field. You cop a lot of knocks along the way. And unfortunately, at the moment, we're talking about the knocks, but you understand enough of the world to, to be able to talk about that. At what stage against Hawthorne in the grand final, when they belted you, do you think, right, we're going to lose the flag here? And then how do you deal with that for the rest of the game? And then when you go into the sheds afterwards? Yeah, I remember Hodgie kicking a goal from the boundary um, and, you know, Cyril just being Cyril. Yeah. To Birchall, to Rioli, all stars in that opening turn. Rioli with a couple of first quarter goals. Now he's hugging the pocket here, wanting Hodge to win a one-on-one against Schofield. Puopolo got a high tackle, back to Hodge. That's a goal, I think. It is. Hodge has done it from nowhere. So the last moments. So Hawthorne have done it. The first team in the 18-team competition to go back to back to back. They're three Peters. They are remarkable. Yeah, it was early days, I reckon, before half-time where I thought, what's happening in the third quarter and the fourth quarter comes along and, you know, guys are just starting to rack up possessions and, and half-celebrate in front of you and you thought, you know, it's all over and... To be honest, the wave of emotion hit me pretty hard. I'd obviously, you know, had a tough year. Um, I'd lost my cousin at the start of the year and and had to go and bury him. And then I lost my mum, you know, just on the eve of the final. So I had to fly home to Fiji for, you know, a couple of weeks and and go through that process and then come home. So a bit selfish of me, but that grand final week was, you know, obviously meant to be the biggest part of your life. The parade's meant to be the biggest thing, but... For me, it was all a bit of a blur. Uh, I didn't sleep much the night before the game and I sat there with my twin brother. Um, you know, I initially didn't want to play in the grand final um, weeks leading into it, but then, you know, I, I felt pretty selfish not to play. So, um, yeah, I didn't sleep much before the grand final and, you know, obviously losing the grand final just probably brought it all to, you know, the forefront. And I think once I walked back into the locker room, it all just hit me that, you know, uh, the course of the last month or so of what had happened and what had transpired really hit me so yeah losing didn't really help my case so um yeah it was pretty sad and then to miss out in 18 just probably made it uh even more real even again um uh, once again these are deeply private questions so answer them as you will you're talking about 2015 and not wanting to play and do you want to talk about what happened oh yeah i think probably when i when i got back to my village um it's hard fijian culture is different um you know, in, back home, we don't have funeral directors. We don't have, you know, like your your funeral homes that do everything for you. So to hear the news of my mum's passing and then having to go back home and, 
you know, we've got to do it all. So myself and my twin brother fly home and within a day we're out picking out coffins, we're out picking out flowers, picking out who's going to, um, you know, run the service at the, at the village church, um, things like that. You know, going to the morgue, having to, having to dress your parents is, is, a, is a hard thing. Um, you know, there's, there's people that do it here for you um, in Australia. And for me, culturally, that's just what, what you do and how it's done. And um, it was hard. It's, it was, it's always been eye-opening for me and it's been a pretty big, uh, big thing for me having to do that with, you know, friends or family members um, in Fiji. But when it's your, when it's your mum, it's probably hits home a little different and it hit home pretty hard that time. And, yeah, I just remember sitting back home in, in the village after it all happened and, and after the funeral was done and the dust had settled and I kind of didn't want to come home. I thought, well, what's the point of playing footy? I guess uh, everyone has their reason why they play footy. And for me, you know, most of my reasoning why was for my mum and whether it was to... to you know, make her not have to work three jobs anymore and get her a house or um, help support her or um, to make her proud. That was, that were my biggest, I guess, drivers. And to not have her around anymore, I sort of thought, what's the point? And yeah, it wasn't until one of my uncles sat me down in, in our family home over there and said, you know, kind of don't waste your time here. Otherwise you end up, you know, climbing coconut trees and picking banana leaves, not doing much. So go and make something of your life, go and make something of your career. Um, they don't really understand footy. They said, oh, you've got a couple of games left, but they didn't realise that we have finals and <laughs> we have a chance to, to make a grand final, which we ended up doing. Um, so I just, yeah, I had a realisation I had to come back. I had to, I guess, like, what do you say? Grow up, man up, like just get on with the job. So for me, uh, I did that pretty quickly. Uh, but yeah, I'm human. I think it all hit me, like I said, at the end of that game. You're a young, you're a young man not to have any parents to guide you. How old are you now? Are you 30, 31? I'm 30 now, yeah. Yeah, so I was 20, 25 at the time. And that, that's always been the hard part for me. I think the realisation, like I've always had my, my struggles and my troubles over the years and, you know, I keep a lot of it pretty private, but people don't understand being 25 in a, in a foreign country um, with no family, you know, it was just me and my, and my twin brother over here trying to navigate the world. Like people see you at the highest, the highest, and they go, Nick's got a nice car, a nice house, he's at the West Coast Eagles, he's, you know, he lives the life, but I always found it hard being 25 years old, walking out of the change rooms after games and all, all the boys are sitting there with their families, um, you know, talking about the win or talking about this. And I'd go home and stare at my four walls. Um, that was always tough. Um, you know, I try to ring home sometimes after games, but they're five hours ahead back in Fiji. So that was always tough for me. And it was, yeah, I guess being 25 and not having anyone was, um, probably the hardest part, yeah. And people probably didn't realise that at the time. People didn't see that. Um, and then you don't play good footy at times and people bag you. And that's probably when those things start to hurt more because you kind of sit there and go, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what my life entails or what I deal with on a daily basis. I can't go out and get a coffee down the road without someone harassing me or going to fill up my car. So, um, yeah, it does feel lonely at times and you do feel pretty secluded and like you are on your own, but oh, I just find ways to get through. Like, I'm like, I got two feet in a heartbeat. I'm not dead. Like, <laughs> stop whinging, stop crying. Get something out of you. You're already sad and upset. Like, get something from it. So that's always been my mindset. I appreciate your frankness, mate. I'm lucky enough to have both my parents, so I, I can't, I can listen, but I can't really understand what you're explaining to me. So how as a professional athlete then, 
whether it's going into the grand final or just in footy in general now, how do you make that switch in your mind to say, okay, I've had a tough day, but now I have to go and do my job. Is there a process? How do you do it? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's just perspective. Like I think having a village back home has probably been the best thing for me. If I didn't have that, I wouldn't have been able to do that process. So just knowing that people do struggle, I think – when people think of Fiji, they think of the white sandy beaches and the palm trees and the, and the nice resorts and whatnot. But village lifestyle, all, albeit it is, um, you know, a nice place, family orientated and um, pretty laid back. It is it is third world to a sense. And uh, some of the people do struggle over there. And, and I've always felt it's my obligation to help them back home, whether it's helping kids through school um, back in the village or helping build certain things, that, you know, like a new pathway for kids to get to certain places in the village has always been a big part of it. So, um, and football's always been that avenue to allow me to do that. So, um, yeah, I always felt I had a role to play and I had an obligation to do that. So going back and playing footy was a, a pretty easy step to do. Talk about philanthropy, for want of a better term, later, because it's something I want to talk about with you. But when you talk about help kids get through school, is that, is that financial assistance? Are you providing financial assistance for, for kids to be able to get through school? Yeah. Oh, I have been since day one. Yeah, since day one. it's <laughs> I have a, a great empathy for the Indigenous community. I see a lot of the Indigenous yep. boys come through and they've got so many people pulling on them, um, you know, especially when you make it the AFL ranks. They see you with a brand-new car and things like that. They People want something or they want more. Um, and you know it's probably similar to back home Um, it's not really the want but it's also probably just the guilt inside you know we live a pretty good life in Australia and I I also feel guilty sometimes thinking back home not everyone's living you know a normal life so for me um, yeah I've been doing it since before I played AFL footy Uh, I remember a lot of our money would go back home so mum would make her money Um, she'd keep half to, to feed us growing boys but then half would go back home to the village and that's been since, you know, I remember I won a grant from the AFL Life members um, when I was 17 and that was like a $3,000 grant and that's meant to go towards your footy and your, that went straight to the village. So <laughs> I've, um, <laughs> I, I've just grown accustomed to it and it's always been a part of me and, yeah, I think it's just giving back. And for me, it's it's not a big thing, even though sometimes, you know, monetary-wise you're not in a situation to do so, but it always find a way to get back to you. I always believe that. So I'm a firm believer in um, if you give something that, you know, you'll get something back in return. It might not be money, but, you know, it might be a thank you or a smile and that's and that's always been good enough for me. Mate, we're very lucky on this show that a lot of kids listen and I hope they're listening to what you just talked about now. As a 17-year-old, when the three-year end disappeared out the door, <laughs> as a 17-year-old, what part of you going, hey, but that's... Mine? Oh, 100%. Ten times. I'd, I'd be lying if I said I enjoyed giving it. I just yeah. threw it away. I'd, I'd always said it's mine. I'd always fight. That. And as a kid, you never really understood. Like I said, as as hard as it was at the times, we weren't getting a brand new – like my friend's parents had to buy me my first pair of footy boots and pay for my, my football fees because we just couldn't afford it. So at the time, I always used to get angry at my mum going, why don't I have the new Nike boots or why don't I have, you know, a pair of skins to wear under my shorts? All the boys were wearing them. But – Realising that they're 80 bucks or they're, you know, 150 bucks for a pair of boots, it didn't translate in my head. I, I didn't really think of how hard it was to be a single mother looking after growing boys and giving money back home and working three jobs. So I look back now, I feel a little bit um, guilty for saying those sort of things because I'm like, oh, I struggle on my own. I haven't got any children or anything and I, I struggle to do that at times and I, and I can see how hard it must have been for mum back then. So, um, yeah, I, 
I hated sharing. I hated sharing as a kid, but you just learn to do it and then you you slowly figure out that that's just the way of life. Yeah. That's the end of Nick Nadanui Part A. So much more to come in Part B. See you cool cats there. Listener.